1-9. What's up? How are you? You understand that eating cookies in McCarter Theater makes you of a very privileged few. There really typically are not cookies in McCarter Theater. And for those of you who brought them into the seating area, watch for the house police. That's all I have to say. Welcome to Reflections on Diversity. I'm Maria Flores Mills. I work in the Office of the Dean of Undergraduate Students, and one of my responsibilities is to serve as the chair of the REP committee. What's REP? Just like, you know, you go to the Y, you are going to be a Woody Woo major, and um, you've been out to the street. We talk in all these acronyms no one really understands. The Residential Education Program, which is um, a set of programs for first-year students that are framed to signal important community values like safety, responsibility, respect, and civility. Reflections on Diversity is the, the first of these. Actually, Alcohol EDU was the first one, which many of you um, completed before you got here. Tonight is Reflections on Diversity, and tonight, tomorrow night is Sex on a Saturday Night. Come on. Don't miss it. It's a good show. They'll that'll be followed with some um, small group programs that'll take place in your residential college. Advisors, are you here tonight? That's my crew right there. That's my crew. Um, thank you. So we're going to begin tonight um, with a presentation of a new award, the Peter Goldsmith Award by Vice President Dickerson, and then I'll follow with brief introductions of our four student speakers, followed by our faculty speaker, Professor Nunakawa, each reflecting on their own personal experiences at Princeton. When we conclude, you should return to your residential college for discussion groups that will be facilitated by my crew, your RCAs. We'll begin tonight with the award of a new prize, the Peter Goldsmith Award. Please welcome Vice President of Campus Life, Janet Dickerson. Good evening. The Peter Goldsmith Award is a new award. So this year will be the first time that we'll be presenting it, presenting it, but it will be presented annually from now on. It is established in memory of Dr. Peter Goldsmith, who was a director of studies at Maddie College from 1985 to 1993, who during his tenure at Princeton University and later at Dartmouth and Oberlin, Oberlin Colleges, where he was the dean of students, worked tirelessly to promote civil discourse and respect of the other in our increasingly racially and culturally diverse academic environments. This award recognizes a rising sophomore or junior, or it could be in recognition of a group of such students acting together, who, in this case, by her actions in the residential colleges, have shown sensitive sensitivity to the challenge of the other and played an active role in promoting the understanding and appreciation of racial and cultural diversity in our Princeton University community. It's my great honor to introduce to you tonight's winner. Um, the award, I should say, consists of a book and a commemorative plaque, which has been awarded this year to Ms. Danielle Hamilton, class of 07.
Her nominators wrote these words. We know of no other student who has actively promoted the understanding and appreciation of racial and cultural diversity in our university community and beyond better than Danielle has. She was in the 2003 Freshman Scholars Institute, and since then, they wrote, she worked tirelessly in both formal and informal ways to promote interaction and dialogue among students, faculty, and administrators. She has a long list of accomplishments. Some of them include these. She spearheaded black dialogue at Princeton, student gatherings held once a month for the purpose of discussing the African-American experience at the university. In their last meeting last year, they showed the film Looking Back, a series of interviews with black alumni followed the, following the screening with discussion. She was also an organizer of the Du Bois series through which 20 to 30 students meet regularly with faculty to discuss academic issues. One such event was the opportunity to hear Professor Daphne Brooks give a talk on the title of Black Sat Satire. Danielle is an active member of the leadership and mentoring program known as LAMP which organizes mentoring relationships and holds study breaks in Butler colleges for students who identify themselves as students of color. She also served last year as administrative director of the Black Arts Company, also known as BAC, and she was the, black, she was the vice president of the Black Students Union in 04-05. Danielle's crowning achievement last year was to be the sponsor of, or the producer of a BSU, um, AASU cultural night program on April 1st last year. It was a wonderful program. The title was Fried Chicken and Fried Rice, Beyond the Stereotypes. This event brought together nine student organizations, including Culturally Yours, an all-female a cappella group dedicated to performing music of African descent, Fuzzy Dice, improvisational comedians, the High Steppers, a traditional African dance troupe, Nacho, an Indian dance troupe, the Princeton University Gospel Ensemble, Triple Eight, an East Asian dance company, among others, as well as a Philadelphia-based poet known for exploring ethnic stereotypes through rap poetry. This evening was dedicated to the collaboration of cultural counterparts in such a way as to shed light on and force the participants and audience to think productively about stereotypes that blacks and Asians hold of each other and confront in a broader societal sense. The event involved dozens of performers and organizers and was attended by hundreds of community members. Danielle told me tonight that she hopes to make this an annual event. Outside the university, Danielle is a social justice advocate who focuses on raising awareness of sweatshop activities across the globe. She, works for, she worked for peers last year. This summer, she served as a teacher's assistant in the Princeton University prep program. And she also told me that she was an RIA at a program called LEAD, which prepares under-resourced students for university experiences. Danielle tells me that she's from California and um, will be or is a comparative literature major. It's my great honor to present this certificate as well as this 
Book Award to Danielle Hamilton, class of 07. Thank you so much. Congratulations, Danielle. I'd like to introduce our first uh, student speaker for this evening, Adriana Diaz, is a former Miss Teen New York who also competed in the 2003 Miss Teen USA contest. Exactly. A former, <laughs> a former colleague at the Children's Aid Society described Adriana as bubbly, enthusiastic, and positive, said that she remained endlessly optimistic and had the gift of looking straight at the heart of the person, always seeking to uplift and affirm. She has remained involved in her community in New York, finding ways always to stay invested. A committed, serious scholar, Adriana is also a gifted actress. She played Bettina, a 60-year-old Jewish widow living in Israel in Toni Morrison's The Same Sea. Professor Nancy Gabor, now teaching in Amsterdam's Theater Conservatory School, noted that Adriana asked questions, took risks, and in the end performed beautifully. Adriana has been the secretary and co-president of Acción Puertorriqueña y Amigos and co-chair of two Latino Heritage Months. Please join me in welcoming Adriana. Well, hello, hello, everyone. Good evening. First and foremost, and I know you've heard this a thousand times already, but congratulations to the class of 2009. Before I begin, I have to admit that as a freshman, I was always a little weirded out when a Princeton student would congratulate me for getting into Princeton. <laughs> It just seemed like there was something a little pretentious, I know that's pretty unheard of at this school, about, uh, about someone congratulating someone else for being accepted into a group to which that first person belonged. It's almost like saying, congrats, someone in admissions thought you were as cool as me. But now that the roles are reversed, I realize that it's not a congrats for being as cool as me. Well, not completely. We congratulate you because we know what extraordinary opportunities await you. We each have our own sets of experiences that we can attribute to this institution's dedication to its students. So congratulations for being as lucky as us to have been chosen from thousands of other talented students to gain and grow from all Princeton has to offer. Okay, enough with the sentimental stuff. When I received an email from the dean asking me to speak at this year's Reflections on Diversity, I honestly figured that there must have been some kind of mistake. When I attended this event as a, as a freshman, the group of speakers were a bona fide representation of diversity, international students and the like. No one born, born and raised an hour and a half away like me in New York City. Being that my family is from the Dominican Republic, I know that I am definitely diverse, but not hardcore enough to be up here talking to the entire freshman class about Princeton's diversity. I consider myself pretty normal. I mean, I had the typical experience one has before college. I went to a big high school, I played sports, hung out with my friends. I had no stories of how I used to walk six miles barefoot, but am now thriving at Princeton. Actually, being that I did come from a large, uh, diverse high school in New York City, Stuyvesant High School, where you at? Anybody? I assumed that diversity at Princeton would be the least of my worries. However, once I stepped onto campus, I was shocked to find every student looking like they just stepped out of a J. Crew catalog. For some insane reason, I had no idea of Princeton's preppy and traditional reputation. I honestly must have been living under a rock for the first, half, first 18 years of my life. So it came to be that it was Princeton's diversity itself that I would have the most trouble dealing with. 
What I struggled with freshman year was learning that my definition of diversity coming from New York, the traditional racial or socioeconomic definition, was not the universal definition of diversity. It took me too long to realize that what we have at Princeton is an even fuller or all-encompassing definition, a diversity of perspectives and life experiences. As a Dominican American from New York, I am just as diverse as my old roommate Caroline, a lesbian debutante from North Carolina, currently training to row in the next Olympic Games, my best friend Nikki, back there, who um, is a Puerto Rican from New Jersey and also happens to be Republican. See, before Princeton, I thought a Hispanic Republican was an oxymoron, which really goes to show how little I knew about diversity. Or my friend Christina, whose mother was born in Austria and whose father is a Las Vegas singer. I was just out there. He's pretty good. It's pretty hard to believe now that this clear representation of diversity initially did not strike me as such. It didn't break the unintellectual country club image that for some reason I was so convinced was all Princeton was. What's funny is that those who did seem to embody the old school, embody old school Princeton are now some of my best friends. For example, when I first stepped into my freshman year Spanish class, little did I expect the girl sitting next to me who I thought fit the Princeton mold to a T, jumbo pearl earrings and all, would become one of my closest friends at Princeton. Ironically, where at first I saw little diversity and therefore little room for us to, to learn from each other, what occurred was just that. We were amused to find that we had completely opposite views of Princeton. While I thought it was the most conservative place in the world, somehow she thought that our school was full of tree-hugging activists. Go figure. And even though she's from uppity Boston and went to a prestigious prep school, she turned out to be one of the people at Princeton who I feel most understands me. We've grown from each other. And in Hillary's ears, I now often see oversized bling-bling, and I'll admit that I'll wear the occasional pearls. So, although Princeton initially seemed painfully uniform to me, this school has taught me that diversity goes far beyond skin or pocket deep. In my experience, the, most, the more I get to know another Princeton student, the more intriguing or just plain outrageous factoids I learn about, about them. Take my friend Brandon. He is the preppiest guy I know. I mean, this guy rocks his pastels like I've never seen. He's also actually one of the more liberal people I know. And here's a random fact. I just found out that he lived in Kenya for the first half of his life. Or my other friend, Donnell, a fellow Dominican from New York. He practically lived in first campus center freshman year, never working, always socializing, but somehow managed to be the number one student in the freshman class. These days, his work in the classics department rivals that of his professors, while he continues to hold down straight A's in the Woodrow Wilson School, which he minors in for kicks. Mind you, this kid moved to this country without speaking a lick of English at the age of six, and now speaks Latin, Greek, his native tongue of Spanish, and I just found out learned German over the summer to help with his thesis research. Yeah, it's pretty unbelievable. Eddie's taken six courses every semester, which I don't suggest any normal person does. Then there's Hiro, a Japanese international student who spends his free, free time creating hip-hop beats when he's not fighting the good fight of North, of North African immigration, immigration rights. Or Anastasia, who seems all-American to the naked eye, but who actually spent most of her childhood in Mexico before heading to boarding school in England, after which she decided to spend a year in Japan before coming to Princeton. So, even though one by one I kept coming across these extremely unique individuals, I was always too quick to categorize them as mere exceptions to the rule, like myself. But the more people I got to know, the more I realized that all of these exceptions to the rule constituted the rule itself. Princeton is defined by its unsuspecting all-star students. I'm not saying that every single person is the mega-student Olympian who saved the rainforest while getting straight A's. Most of us consider ourselves pretty normal, probably a little too normal, and are still wondering how we fooled the admissions office. I know I do. 
But what I want to communicate tonight is that no matter how much you think you already know about someone else at first glance, we all do it, Princeton students have layers upon layers of extraordinary accomplishments and life experiences. The deeper that you dig, the more you will surprise each other. We all have secret passions and achievements that to ourselves probably don't seem like that big of a deal, but that are the precise reason why colleges strive to attain diversity. So students, through learning more about each other, discover more about themselves. I hope my stories about my friends, who in the end are just your average Princeton students, have proven as eye-opening to you as they have to me. I wish you the best as you get to know one another and discover the extraordinary facets about each other that made someone in admissions think that you were as cool as us and who said Princeton wasn't elitist. Candace Lee spent last summer in South Africa, where she worked for an organization that provides assistance to those afflicted with AIDS. I forgot to note in the program that Candace has also worked for financial aid and served as a dormitory assistant for two years. The girls had more jobs than anyone I know. She's also lived and studied in Germany. Candace is always smiling. It seems like she knows everyone, or they know her, or she's worked for them at some point. For two years, she simply said hi to another student on this campus and then became best friends with her last year. Candace is serious about her studies, about her commitment to making Princeton a better place, and about a career and future in working with the less fortunate. She's also incredibly fun and an has an amazing sense of humor. She loves the color green and has been rumored to watch and enjoy Matlock. <laughs> as well as eat relish, peanut butter, and ice cream straight from the container. Sorry to spill all your secrets. I've had the pleasure and honor of getting to know Candace over the last several years. Please help me welcome Candace. Wow, that um, kind of ruins my very dignified entrance. But anyways, good evening class of 2009, fellow speakers, Dean Flores, Mills, and guests. I would have never thought three years ago that I would have a chance to speak to incoming students on such a grand scale. And so when I was asked to speak, I was very excited. But once my initial excitement wore off, I was terrified because I had no idea what I was going to say and because I knew I wanted your reflections on diversity experience to be better than mine. You see, I still have mixed emotions about my experience. It has nothing to do with the speakers because they, of course, were fabulous like I will be. What overshadows their speeches, though, is the session and the discussion that followed this event. Somehow my group got on the topic of ethnic and cultural groups at Princeton, and the consensus that mostly everyone seemed to agree upon was that they were not only unnecessary, but that they, in fact, caused more harm than good. They were seen as segregationist and too narrowly focused for the very diverse Princeton community. As they were talking, I could feel their eyes on me and one other girl in the group, the only two black people. Although it wasn't spoken, their expectant expressions revealed what they wanted. It was a look I am very familiar with. They were looking for us to explain why these groups were necessary, even though we were freshmen just like them, even though we had no way of knowing what these groups actually stood for. And the reason they expected this is because we were members of the ethnic minority, and so naturally, we'd understand why they needed to exist. I remember thinking, here we go again. But before I assumed the familiar role of defending or explaining why minorities did certain things, I stopped. I had been in Princeton for less than a week, 
and I was too early, and I wasn't ready to be labeled as the person that people could come to when they needed to know something about black people. I didn't want to have the role of giving white people the black opinion or being the black voice. Plus, I didn't think there was really much need for me to explain why minority students needed a group to cater to its needs. Without even knowing what a group such as the Black Student Union did, I could venture an educated guess as to why it existed, and something I, I didn't think white people were incapable of considering. This was a room of supposedly intelligent people who knew the breakdown of Princeton's student population as well as I did. They knew that as white students, they made up the overwhelming majority of the student population, even though for, Prince, even though for them, Princeton was the most diverse place they'd ever been. It seems logical to me that there would be a need for students belonging to or identifying with a minority to have organizations to cater to their specific needs or to bring awareness to the broader Princeton community. It made sense for me that for a person who spends the majority of their time on campus being in the minority, to have an outlet where they can meet with people who look like them or people who have similar upbringing, who eat the same food or whatever the case may be without having to first explain themselves. And I knew that me being black had nothing to do with the fact that I could reach these conclusions. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe there was something that prevented my peers from thinking through that issue and trying to understand the purpose of ethnic minority groups. Maybe there was something that kept them from understanding the purpose of the groups and then wanting to work with them to create a broader sense of community between all Princeton students. Perhaps this is the same thing that prevents those active in or those active in organizations such as campus publications or drama groups from imagining what effect their words can have on campus when they focus on members of a minority. I remember having a conversation with the chairperson of one of the campus publications last semester about jokes in his magazine that made repeated references to the Ku Klux Klan. One of the jokes went so far as to use the Black Arts Company Facebook group to further the KKK humor. I remember thinking that I'd have to first explain to him exactly how and why his article was not only not funny, but more importantly, offensive. But then he said something that surprised and disappointed me more than the article itself. He told me he agreed, that he could see why it was offensive, and that he found it offensive himself, but that he and his staff were running late, and he didn't think it would be too offensive, and so he let the article in. It was at that point that I realized there was a much deeper problem on Princeton's campus. While I do think that ignorance exists and that there will always be that person to ask why black women don't wash their hair every day, I don't think that's always the problem. I have found that our campus community is plagued with both a willful, willful ignorance and an apathy that take away from the beauty of our diversity. There is an attitude here that removes certain issues from the importance of being campus issues and turns them into minority issues. It prevents coalitions and collaborations between various groups on campus from forming because one group may not be mainstream or popular. It allows students who have not bothered to imagine themselves in someone else's shoes to make hurtful judgments and statements about that person or the group with which they are affiliated. It allowed that chairperson to publish an article that he knew in advance could cause harm. Over the past three years, I've been involved in a number of organizations with my primary focus being the Black Student Union. And in my time serving the black community, I have of course been confronted with this attitude. And I think how nice it would be if I could just make everyone think like me. 
or at least how it would be if I could force my peers to walk in the shoes of the people they're either offending or avoiding. This is not to say that I like to eliminate controversy because controversy does give you an opportunity to reflect, modify, or strengthen what you believe. What I would like to eliminate, though, is the feeling that we should not be or do not have to be both aware and respectful of all the differences that exist in our student body. As I did my own reflections on diversity, I realized how blessed I am to be at Princeton. This university has a diverse student population in terms of geography, both nationally and internationally, race, ethnicity, religion, and sexual orientation. In our peers and faculty, we have a wealth of knowledge and experiences that makes us incredibly fortunate. It offers us the opportunity to challenge ourselves in ways that students at other universities will never enjoy. And at the same time, the diversity on this campus makes us all highly responsible to one another. We are responsible for making sure that the things we say and do do not alienate us from one another, making the diversity on this campus impossible to appreciate. And so that is my challenge to you as you begin your Princeton career. Don't fall into the trap of isolating or alienating yourself from others. Be respectful of the people around you. Make the choice to not be ignorant, apathetic, or hurtful. Try to ensure that your experience at Princeton is not the reason that other students do not enjoy theirs. Your next four years will be an incredible journey, and I wish you all nothing but the best. Good luck, take care, and thank you for listening. Elizabeth Lee is a remarkable and talented young lady. During the summers of 2004 and 2005, Lizzie served the crisis ministry. Her coworkers said she used her sense of humor and her good common sense in working with people in crisis. She's a diehard North Carolina Tar Heels fan. <laughs> it, it has been rumored that she collects flip-flops and sandals that match nearly every outfit she owns. A receipt inadvertently left in a bag returned to my office provided some hard evidence that Lizzie partakes in the occasional J. Crew shopping binge. Her sister wrote me from the University of North Carolina, quote, I've probably looked up to Elizabeth since the day I was born. The greatest thing about her is that she genuinely cares about each and every person she meets, but in a way that is completely selfish. She concludes, everyone knows that she is an amazing person. But as a sister, I found her amazing, not just because of the way she has handled her eye disease, but because of the way her eye disease has absolutely no effect on her persistence and determination and the way she will extend a hand out to someone else just to make them happy. Her former high school teacher, Will Spears, class of 1979, describes Lizzie as a paradox. I thought this most appropriate. He uses phrases like intense and ferocious scholar in the same breath with silly, raucous and irreverent, the latter being the qualities that have so endeared Lizzie to me over the last four years. Please help welcome Lizzie. I asked my sister, a freshman at UNC, um, what I should say to her peers at Princeton. She looked at me on my laptop in my collared shirt on a Saturday night in the middle of the summer and said, frankly, embrace the dorkiness. She was doing something quite common and quite wrong in our society, 
categorizing an individual based on the academic institution he or she attends. In some ways, she's kind of right. I mean, who wasn't incredibly awkward in seventh grade, and who didn't miss a party or two in high school to study for a test? And yet we have more in common than our perhaps somewhat dorky past. We were all at the top of our class. We are all incredibly gifted. We all have to write a senior thesis. Oh, help me, God. Um, and we have all had to drop the P-bomb in social settings and deal with either the, oh my God, you're so smart, I can't even talk to you, or the, oh wow, your parents must be so proud response. In fact, when you get to Princeton, sometimes it seems like somehow you're not as unique and special as you were during the class of 2005 award ceremony in May. <laughs> and throughout your time here, um, I fear that some people find it difficult to really see how different everyone is. I mean, you may think I'm up here, the plain vanilla white girl, J. Crew and all, representing the majority. Um, when in, actu <laughs> in actuality, um, what you can't see um, from just what I look like is that I have a visual disability. Um, since I've come to Princeton, I've lost a significant portion of my vision. Um, when I first arrived freshman year, I was slightly blind, um, partially blind, but I refused to tell anyone about it. I would wake up early every day of Frosh Week and attempt to memorize the campus so that I wouldn't have to use a cane. Um, one time it took me three hours to get to Frist from Blair. Um, if you know now, that's like five minutes. Uh, so if you've had to ask for directions, please don't feel embarrassed. Um, I also fell down some stairs in front of a tour of about 50 people um, who immediately went, <gasps> and the tour guide stopped and said, are you okay? And I just said, I did get in here. Um, but as, as my vision got worse um, and it became imperative that I let people know, um, I realized that not everyone was going to think I was weird. Um, not everyone was going to have the same response to my disability. Um, Princeton actually had a very diverse um, response. Uh, you know, one professor thought that it was so incredible that I actually came to class. Um, you know, one girl thought it was really hip and trendy. Um, <laughs> other people have been just incredibly supportive in very different ways, um, wanting to know more about the medical aspects of the disease, wanting to help in fundraising, wanting to take care of me, wanting to read books on tape. and. As I told more and more people and realized all these varying responses, I started to realize that my initial generalization of everyone just thinking I was weird was just absolutely wrong. Um, one of the biggest things I had to learn to do at Princeton was to listen. Um, I had to learn to listen to books on tape rather than reading them. I had to learn to listen to how the wind changes at the edge of a building to know when to turn left or right. Um, I had to learn to listen to footsteps, things you wouldn't really think about, but um, I had to learn to listen to people's voices 
and to be able to recognize them. And then I had to listen to their intonations when the voice goes up and down and whatever else. Um, and I had to visualize in my head what the expressions on their faces would be. And all of a sudden, I realized everyone is walking around with a completely different way of thinking about the world. They're navigating through their classes in a completely different way. Um, and everyone has an incredible perspective to share with you. It's really a matter of listening. Um, you may have moments at Princeton where you go to the street and you think everyone is the same. Everyone is trying to impress everyone else and I really have nothing to gain from these people. Or you go to a class and you think, wow, everyone else is on top of their work. Um, it's just this perfect student and is exactly the same as everyone else. And that is just so dangerous. It's dangerous because it doesn't allow you to learn from other people. It's dangerous because it might mean that you try to conform with them and lose a sense of who you are. Um, and it's dangerous because I think it isolates each individual person and maybe makes people competitive, which is the most ridiculous thing. Y'all should not be competitive with each other. We are like the smartest people. We should be learning from each other. Um, so if you're not gonna do it for your own enlightenment, um, do it because when you leave here and you go into the real world, you are going to need all these uber intelligent perspectives to help you make the right decisions. And because it's unjust and unfair for you not to share who you are and your own understandings of the world with other people. And um, also because if you spend more talk, time talking to people and listening to people, you may more easily avoid the taunting dork label from your siblings. Lazaretti is an RCA in Wilson College. <laughs> he has served as an LGBT peer educator for the past three years, and this year is a team leader. He's also been the vice president of the Pride Alliance for two years. A friend notes, he's the kind of guy who can walk into his room and wake him up at 7 a.m. because you have birds in your room and you have no idea how to get rid of them. While I hid under the covers, he took off my screens and freed the birds while laughing about it the whole time. He's an amazing friend and an incredible bird catcher. <laughs> when I asked the master of Wilson College, Professor Browning, about Chris, she pointed me to a journal entry in the Wilson College handbook where he describes his angst at writing, the, um, writing to his advisees. Despite this questionably practical ex practice, he writes, the hardest thing to write this year might prove to be my RCA introduction. Don't start with welcome or hello, I'm told. Be creative, they say. It is as if I have been asked to chisel the words of humanity into the stone of eternity. Chisel the words of humanity into the stone of eternity? I thought, wow, this kid is intense. <laughs> then he goes on to say, um, 
I want to simply be able to say I'm Chris from a small town in Colorado. I lived in South Africa my sophomore year. I like to play tennis and to make music and work out, to eat at Terrace and to talk endlessly about travel. How, under these conditions, can I get it across to my future advisees? That I am an RCA who's anxious to help with any problem, ranging from course selection and roommate problems to the city navigation and room decoration. I need to look cool and nice in under 200 words, but not too cool or too nice, because that would be uncool. His humanity, his heart shone through. His former assistant master, Kelly Hoffman, also noted his popular steady breaks, his ability to make everyone feel comfortable in his presence. She even sidebars his affinity for Tim McGraw's music as further testament that he's too cool. Please welcome Chris Lazaretti. Before I begin, I'd like to steadfastly deny any knowledge of Tim McGraw. <laughs> I would like to join the past speakers in welcoming you to Princeton. Like the other individuals you have heard tonight, my time at Princeton has strongly been shaped by my identity. You might be wondering what a tall white male might offer during a diversity speech. I'm wondering too. Quite simply, I'm from the Midwest. <laughs> Being geographically different is a challenge at Princeton, to say the least. <laughs> years and years of speech therapy have still yet to correct my overwhelming desire to call soda pop. Just kidding. I'm actually not here to talk to you about my geographical upbringing, as Midwestern as that may have been. I'm actually here to represent what is possibly the most all-encompassing minority at Princeton. This group is what I like to call an invisible minority. It includes people of color and people who are white. People from across America and the globe, people of all genders. By now, you might have guessed that I'm here to represent the gay community. I was debating wearing my rainbow tie to make the puzzle easier, but we all go to Princeton. That said, I don't wish to speak as the spokesman for Queer Nation, but rather simply tell you how being gay has shaped the last three years of my life at this university. I was partially out in high school. Well, that's not entirely true. I like to think that I was out on a need-to-know basis. I just happened to think that everybody needed to know. <laughs> Coming out became a pastime to be enjoyed when not playing sports or writing to the local newspaper. I was steadfast about changing that before my freshman year in college. It wasn't that I'd had bad experiences being out in high school. I just knew Princeton was a traditionally conservative school. So I loaded my small sports car and drove 2,000 miles across the country to New Jersey to begin my so-called straight life. Once I arrived on campus, I think that strategy worked for 10 minutes, maybe 15. The first person I met on campus was my RCA. 
After learning she was from San Francisco, I asked her if she had ever hung out in the Castro, a traditionally gay neighborhood. She nodded, all too knowingly, and at that moment I realized I had come out almost by default. <laughs> there was no use in keeping her in suspense. After I told her I was gay, she nodded again and told me where I could find the subway schedule to Christopher Street, a historically gay street in New York City. You're going to want to take the one, two, or three train downtown if you're taking notes. I was penitent for my slip to my RCA, and I entered into a self-regulated and ruthless program of retail therapy. I punished myself with a new pair of running shoes Nevertheless, I was curious about who was gay at Princeton and what they did. I was pretty sure it was a small group of people with whom I did not want to be associated. I snuck a gay and lesbian student services calendar from Frist into my bag, hiding it in the pages of a freshly printed Pequod course packet. Imagine my surprise when during the precept next hour my professor asked to borrow my packet and the gay and lesbian calendar fell out. <laughs> I shrugged, trying to act as innocent as possible. Really, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> they must just give them out. I hid the calendar in my desk drawer and peeked at it secretly throughout the year, dying to know what happened at the campus gay and lesbian events. One event held particular interest to me, the annual Fall Pride Alliance LGBTA dance held in early October. LGBTA, for those of you who do not know, is an acronym for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and ally community. And the Pride Alliance is the undergraduate student group made up of LGBTA individuals. The theme of their dance that year, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, seemed appropriate to my situation. <laughs> Mustering all of the courage I could find, I donned a pair of camo pants and an army shirt snuck out of Wilson College, hid in the shadows of Guillaume Hall, crept across Washington Street, and into the dance. Employing the powers of my camel pants, I positioned myself squarely next to a potted tree in the corner. <laughs> I was content just to observe. Over the next 20 minutes, the room filled with women and men, some gay, some straight, and some bisexual. There were people from every eating club, every sports team, and every major. I was amazed at how diverse and varied the Princeton LGBTA community was. I couldn't hide my surprise, which must have attracted attention, in spite of my brilliant camouflage scheme. Before long, I found myself awkwardly dancing like a white boy from the Midwest in the middle of a sweaty crowd of Princeton students. See, I, I told you this story would be about the Midwest. It was only a matter of time then. My circle of friends grew dramatically and included gay and straight students and faculty. I came out to my roommate, my friends, and the people involved in my extracurriculars. I suppose my story is somewhat of a fairy tale, no pun intended, of course. <laughs> because I didn't receive one negative reaction. In spite of the fact that I thought my sexuality would keep me from doing the things I'd like to do at Princeton, 
I've managed to become the Vice President of the Pride Alliance in RCA and Wilson College, the Assistant Conductor of the Chapel Choir, a Psychology Major, a member of an eating club, and the recipient of two academic prizes. As I look back at my first year or so at Princeton, I'm disappointed in myself. I came to Princeton with a specific set of stereotypes and expectations, and I let those beliefs guide my actions. I had read the reputation of Princeton, quote, the most conservative ivy, second only to Dartmouth, end quote. I simply assumed that the editors of the college guide I read were correct, and I immediately made the assumption that all of the students I would attend college with would be conservative, and thus I reasoned closed-minded. I'm not sure how many potential friends I alienated by acting on my own stereotypic expectations, but thinking about it makes me a bit sad. As a gay activist today, I am constantly urging people to judge LGBTA individuals as people rather than as a group. Yet three years ago, I was not willing to offer my fellow students and faculty the same individual review that I plead for today. I had in my head the idea that conservative straight individuals were bigoted, closed-minded, and hurtful. I'm happy to say I was quite wrong. Many conservatives I have met do not act in this way, and moreover, Princeton is not quite as conservative as I first expected. I challenge you all to use your four years here to confront your stereotypes and expectations. Certainly no one is spared, gay or straight, from expectations. If you're gay and out, congratulations. You're brave, and I have great respect for you. Challenge yourself by exploring gay scholarship, by playing sports, and by joining any one of the eating clubs on the street. Maybe even join the class of 2009 gay student group. If you're gay and in the closet, know that there are people here who understand you and will support you. Challenge your expectations that living an openly gay life will be a negative experience. If you are straight, I thank you, for without you, I'm not sure who would have the 2.1 children needed for sustainable population growth. <laughs> Don't use your years here at Princeton doing that, though. Um, <laughs> to you, I hope you will use your four years at, at Princeton to challenge your stereotypes about gays, lesbians, bisexuals, transgenders, and all people. The ally community is the backbone of the gay community, and we are always happy for your help. Sometimes you are able to do what we cannot, like pass legislation and fight discrimination. I was wrong in stereotyping Princeton as a hotbed of homophobia and its students as unthinking bigots. Please learn from my mistake. As much as we've come to Princeton for the faculty, we've also come for our fellow students. Do not write off any other student because of what you expect of him or her. As you return for your fifth or your 50th reunion, you will find yourself greatly rewarded for building the strongest, largest friendship network you can. Enjoy your next four years, travel academically and socially, and don't forget to befriend a few gay people along the way. The Pride Alliance Ice Cream Social tonight in Frisk 243 is a great place to start, by the way. <laughs> oh, and if you're ever traveling through the Midwest, stop by and I'll be more than happy to buy you a pop.
it's my pleasure now to introduce our faculty speaker, Professor Nunakawa, who's a member of the faculty in the English department. I actually had not met Professor Nunakawa before tonight, but I'd heard um, many wonderful things about um, the way he engages with his students. Um, from my neighbor, who's also a member of the um, faculty in the English department, um, she said he was fun. I was like, really? <laughs> that's good. I hadn't. I mean, that's not the way um, I've heard. All the faculty described. So um, I was excited to introduce him this evening. Um, he's also known to just be absolutely wicked down in the Dylan um, exercise room on the um, stairmaster. Apparently, <laughs> I've heard. Um, he earned his BA from from Yale and his PhD from Cornell. Um, you'll probably learn a little bit more about his academic pursuits. Um, from, hi from him and his speech. And I've also heard that his um, upbringing and his family in Hawaii have also been very instrumental in the way that he's um, um, grown, the way he's pursued his academic um, career. So please help me welcome Professor Nunakawa. Hi. Um, I feel a little, this will be a little bit redundant since a lot of what's been said uh, already, I'm just going to repeat um, only. Uh, from a century before. Um, I'm going to be honest. Although I was honored, to, honored obviously, to be asked to address you this evening, I had very serious doubts about doing so because I realized uh, that much of what I could say that might actually be somewhat useful to you could not help but be somewhat embarrassing to me. In fact, totally embarrassing. Um, but then I thought, well, uh, <laughs> who better to expose himself as a total fool for the good of the suited body than myself? So here goes. Act one, scene one. A really fancy high-rise in downtown Honolulu. I'm just curious, are there any students from Hawaii here? Really? Nice. Good. Uh, a really fancy high-rise in downtown Honolulu where a high school senior from the outskirts of town, that would be me a thousand years ago, is being interviewed by an alumnus of a university a lot like this one. The, lung, the young lawyer conducting the interview worked for one of those firms fragrant with the odor, odor of old island privilege, and I was a little intimidated. Now, don't get me wrong, this is no Pacific Basin Horatio Alger story I'm starting up here. I was a middle-class kid from a good home and a perfectly fine public school. Still, the only time I'd ever been to a building like this one was to see an oral, oral surgeon about getting my wisdom teeth removed, and the names attached to the law firm with which my interviewer was associated were the stuff of local legend. Now, let me just get the really embarrassing part of this story over with as quickly as possible in order to get to the only moderately mortifying part. So this very sharp young lawyer said to me, tell me about yourself. Well, I said in all sincerity, I mean, I really wasn't trying to be cute. I'd never been more sincere, that's the pathetic part. Well, I said, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that I'm the smartest person my age in Hawaii. And I'd and I'd I really said, I really felt it, like in the, it was from the heart. And it was not like I rehearsed the line. And, and I'd like to go to a university where I'd be really challenged. So here's this lawyer, very serious guy. My interlocutor struggled to keep it together, but to play it straight in the face of such breathtakingly insular megalomania would have required the steely tact of an ambassador to North Korea. Finally, he just dropped his pen in all pretense and seriousness and just started laughing. <laughs> oh, brother, he said to himself. Oh, brother, and just shook his head. At least that's all I remember. That's the only memory I, that I'm able to pull from the black hole of humiliation where my high-rise encounter has fallen. Don't ask me how. It's still not entirely clear to me, but I got in, and off I went, clueless and conceited, as you can see, beyond belief. 
Not for long, though. I may not have been the smartest kid in Hawaii, or at my high school, or in my house, but I was smart enough to figure out pretty fast that everyone else there was at least as smart as I was, and smart enough to begin to wonder what smart meant, anyway, exactly. I was wondering about a lot of other things as well. Places like Yale and Princeton were as far from the world I knew as African history, Renaissance art, American foreign policy, or the rings of Saturn. And I had no idea what to expect from these brave new worlds I'd signed up for. All I knew, all I knew was that I wanted to learn whatever they had to teach me. I wanted it so badly I could taste it. And my main concern during my first year at college, at a college about as far away from home as a place can be, was that I would be exposed as the fraud I quickly came to recognize myself to be and sent home in a bundle of shame. So as summer turned to fall, my astonishing arrogance sank to astonished terror. I swear, I actually do believe this. Some part of me still believes that I did more book learning in the basement of the library my freshman year than I have done in all the years since then. And I've done a lot of schooling since then. All the assigned reading and then all the optional reading. All the notes and lectures and then the notes and the notes. And all the exams, like the final exam for my early European history class, which is a take-home test. With, and check this out. This is so evil. With a single sadistic singularly sadistic question. One question, no choices. Describe the role of Christianity in medieval Europe. <laughs> Sentence one. Take care. And this is, how, this is how these professors wrote this. Take care not to neglect religious, intellectual, social, political, or economic elements. <laughs> this is a take-home example. Okay. Now, we had 48 hours. Like, it was just to pick up the exam and bring it back 48 hours later. And we were told by our professors, obviously totally disingenuously, spend only eight hours on this. Eight hours. Okay, we're sure. Um, uh, so uh, I, think was, I think they were being disingenuous. Um, guess who, of course, tried to round that eight up to 48? Guess who, fueled by nothing but coffee, tea, and fright, in the middle of a second sleepless night, feeling like he was really cracking up, called the infirmary to report a state of mind to some responsible care, care, um, health care provider? Honey, she said, you can come in if you want, but why don't you try this first? Have a glass of warm milk, lie down, and try to relax. Which I did, and the rest was, well, the rest was medieval history. But even the darkest age of my bright college years weren't, wasn't as grim as that, as all that. After my initial attack of nerves was put to bed by that shrewd nurse, I learned to chill a bit, still work hard, and I did just fine. I loved my studies as much as I dreamed I would, and, just as importantly, I met a lot of people and made a lot of friends. It's impossible for me to conjure up the full throttle thrill of those days and nights, the amazing conversations that came from and went all over the map, the miraculous affinities between people who uh, might be expected to share no more than an uneasy border, <clears throat> the swift education and the idioms by which different individuals and traditions cultivated and conducted the powers of reason and imagination, the different ways that people from various parts of the country and the world knew to be witty and wise. My frustration about not being able to convey to you all that heady fun is eased when I realize I don't really need to since you are about to experience it all yourselves. My roommate freshman year, and for the three years after, was a sturdy Catholic guy from Winnetka, Illinois. Does anyone hear Winnetka, Illinois? We had nothing in common except that we were both total dorks desperately trying not to be found out, and once we discovered each other's secret, we relaxed and became quite good friends. 
We would spend hours at night, I mean hours at night after the lights were out, describing the infinitely intricate politics of our respective high school debate teams or reciting how and where, it's totally true, I like we were thrilled by this, so sick, how and where General Rommel, the German warrior who, uh, whom those who really care call uh, by his moniker the Desert Fox, did what and when. But beyond our fondness for winning arguments, which we had great fondness for, and rehearsing the day-by-day -day progress of the Second World War, our interests never merged. Jim's was, Jim was what college admissions counselors used to deem well-rounded and was forever dragging me to witness football games and other such phenomena. The sport thing never really took for me, nor did the poetry readings that he begrudgingly came to uh, uh, with me for him. But we went, we went to each other's thingies and it learned to respect at least a little the skill and joy of someone else's play. At least, we learned, at least we learned that other people's play involves as much skill and joy as our own. I don't want to overstate this hands across the art sport divide bit. Like I say, I never really picked up much understanding about what was happening on the field. And I still remember Jim's annoyance at a performance of the Russian chorus his girlfriend made him attend. The beauty part just didn't grab him. I should mention now that Jim is an economist uh, specializing in domestic tax policy. Uh, he couldn't get past the fact that the chorus was singing in a language foreign to him. For all I know, they're just counting to 100 in Russian. I just really bugged him. It's like, you know, like they're pulling the wool over his eyes. <laughs> it just really pissed him off. Now, Jim may not have known Russian or how to enjoy a song in a language he didn't understand, but he knew a lot of other things that by my calculations way made up for that, balanced the books in his favor. For example, he knew how to tie a tie and, how to, and, knew, and knew to conceal his amazement while showing me how that I didn't. He knew how to help me uh, with the math that I needed for my physics class and how to make the concepts connected to that math sing. And for the three years we shared a room, Jim always knew how to meet me halfway. There's a lot of such halfway work to be done in entrepôts like this, but the reward for this labor, and it is labor, the rewards for such labor are incalculably vast. I know I seemed weird to a lot of people who met me. At a college reunion recently, a classmate reminded me, I'd forgotten this totally, <laughs> I wish I'd been able to forget it forever, reminded me of how I once sent a box of fallen leaves home to my family in Hawaii. So struck was I by this spectacle. But I, actually, that's one thing you'll find, actually. This is actually a, a weird thing about reunions. And it's interesting, because the people that you meet now, they're somewhere between the, like the people that knew you at home, that know you at home, and the people that you'll meet in adult life. It's like you're unprotected in ways, and you, the people you meet now will know you and know things about you that you're going to wish people didn't know. So <laughs> learn to trust and love people around you. That's, that's for real. Um, uh, at a college reunion recently, a classmate reminded me of how I once had sent a box, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so struck was I by the spectacle. But I can assure you, they, these people um, were... <laughs> No weirder than the people I met seemed to we me. Weird in good, even dazzling ways. Like my friend Anthony from, from New Orleans, who catechized me on the shades of blackness, whose blendings and clashings helped compose the indelible colors of his immortal city. The jazz funeral that some of his relatives demanded as the last rite and derided by other family members, that other uh, of his relatives derided, 
um, of a, relatives of a higher yellow variety as, and here I quote directly, deviating only for a necessary euphemism in place of a word that Anthony's own relations used freely en famille, but which on this occasion could only be regarded as a racist obscenity, and you'll fill in the word, a bunch of black people dancing in front of the hearse. In other words, some part of this family was of a certain, uh, uh, you know, somewhere up here in color spectrum, other parts elsewhere, and the ones, some part of the family demanded jazz funerals, the others said, uh-uh, and for the reason I just mentioned. There was, there was my friend Eva from New York, Dorothy Parker Witty, and certifiably erudite. She knew Don Quixote in Spanish and Goethe in German. She knew the poetry of Che Guevara and the history of Prussia. I was impressed. No less impressive in their way as the things she knew were the things she didn't. Jeff, she said to me one day, let me get this straight, Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor isn't in Hawaii? Eva, <laughs> I spent some time thinking, I said finally managing to wrap my mind around what she was saying, why would the Japanese bomb their own harbor? <laughs> A, and B, why would this cause us to go to war with them? <laughs> well, well, I guess, she said, she never really thought about it. I guess, I just always thought it proof positive that these people would stop at nothing in their lunatic campaign to conquer the world. <laughs> Eva, Eva came from a long line of colorful intellectual leftists, said the color was red, or at least pretty pink. There was her great Aunt Renya, whom I met, actually, amazing, uh, who, after she got a little wine in her, would be standing on her chair at family functions, singing the Internationale, swaying back and forth. She was like this very short woman. Back and forth like she was a part of a chorus of some popular front musical, circa 1935. There was Eva's grandfather, a neurologist, who during the McCarthy period preferred prison, preferred prison to giving up the names of communists he knew. Her best story about him is quite connected to our theme tonight, all about coping with diversity. Apparently, Dr. Auslander continued to practice, continuing to practice medicine without a license, attending unofficially to the medical problems of his fellow inmates, was a big hit at Sing Sing, and was especially highly regarded by a bunch of gangsters doing time there. Now, these are gangsters, not like soprano gangsters, but like uh, Edward G. Robinson, Cadby gangsters. And I think this is just true, that gangsters tend to model themselves on what they see. So these guys, these, a bunch of, I mean, in the movies. So these guys were all there. Uh, and he became, he befri was befriended by them, taken up by them. So one day he's out in the prison yard with his newfound friends, and the conversation turns into a bragging contest about who had committed the worst crimes. Finally, it's Eva's grandfather's turn. W what about you, Doc? What are you in for? I am here, Dr. Auslander said in the formal tones of the educated emigre, for my belief in the sacred nature of the First Amendment. Now, according to the fa family legend, this sort of put a damper on the conversation. Until, until one of the mafia guys got a sly, sly light in his eyes and said, yeah, sure, Doc. The First Amendment and maybe some selling some, some uh, prescriptions on the side. <laughs> Otherwise, that's how he, they managed to make sense of it. Now, um, First Amendment, what the hell is I mean, that? The, the idea of going to prison for the First Amendment. Just, <clears throat> in, in keeping with the geometric logic of teenage rebellion, Eva's own politics took a hard right turn when she got to college, and it was through her, or through that, that I met another, uh, what for me was a shocking species, one that I'd read about and seen on TV, but had certainly never encountered in person. Lively-minded, articulate, even eloquent Republicans. In the island world where I'd grown up, <laughs> that's true, that is true. In the island world where I'd grown up, being a Democrat amounted to taking communion. Uh, an unquestioned affiliation. 
to this day, my conservative little brother confessed to me recently, he goes to the polls every four years or every two years, all set to vote Republican, and suddenly the image of my mother appears before him, and his hands automatically pull, go over to the Democratic lever, and he pulls up, just it possessed by her spirit. <laughs> it's true. Don't tell him I told you that. It doesn't make him happy. It's uh, uh, possessed by her spirit, uh, presses the democratic levers and said, goes home, complains to his wife, sits down in front of his computer and calculates his tax burden. <laughs> Coming from such a background, the chance to engage the Republican foe face to face was a really big thrill for me. Not least because these were very honorable opponents in my eyes. Being part of the small cadre of outspoken conservatives at an Ivy League school did require considerable fortitude in those days. And I was obliged to admire their intellectual nerve as they argued the immorality of taxation, the need for more wars, and the superiority of Western civilization. It's a long time ago, but it really did take nerve in those days. But by far, the most foreign person I met in college was my best friend, an Orthodox Jew from Van Nuys, California. Uh, now a journalist and a rabbi who lives with his wife and children in Jerusalem. I didn't know much about Ivy League universities, but I can assure you I knew even less about Orthodox Judaism. Imagine my perplexity the Saturday afternoon I called him um, on the phone, knowing full well he was in his dorm, I just seen him, and, and just heard the phone ring and ring. Imagine his perplexity, this is Saturday, this is Shabbat, imagine his perplexity when I walked down the two floors to his room to find out what was up. Imagine how much we learned about the small size of our separate worlds. Imagine our twin parochialisms melted in common amazement. I, about a people who kept the faith of their ancestors by disengaging themselves from modern technology during the Sabbath, he that I should know nothing about them. But all that separated us only lit up the grounds of the finest intellectual intimacy of my life. I have never learned more from anyone. I have never conversed with anyone more intensely, argued with anyone more fiercely, admired anyone more profoundly, hated anyone more deeply, or loved, or loved anyone more dearly than Michas V. Odenheimer. He loved me too, though not exactly in the same way, and no one could have been more authentically cool than he was when I told him I was gay late one night in the middle of our freshman year. He was the first person I ever told, and he was hardly the obvious candidate for this honor. <laughs> I mean, why him? Why pick a guy whose religion was bound to make this a matter of utmost vexation for him. There were other, more obvious places for me to go. I had already befriended a bunch of song and dance types who were as close to being out as it was possible to be back in those days. You know the types of them. They had already taken me in and later received my little confession without missing a beat. Really? No kidding. I got that a lot. Even Jim, my roommate, straight as an arrow and hardly exempt from the fear of homosexuality that everyone raised in the world we know feels at least a little, was worldly enough to muster a little scholastic suave when I eventually told him. I suspected as much, uh, he said, but there was a category confusion for me, a category confusion. Gay people are by definition people I do not know and I know you. It was kind of a very clever response, I thought, interesting. Uh, searching response. My conservative friends, especially those of the get the government off my back and out of my bedroom stripe, were similarly at ease. And even the real paleo-conservatives, as they proudly called themselves, uh, people who used to sit around toasting the memory of George III or Charles I, delighted in a certain sense of solidarity with another kind of weirdo. 
Eva, of course, knew before I did. Jeff is the most scootable Oriental I've ever met, she used to say. So why would I go to Micha? Because he was my best friend. And as I knew he would, he rose to the occasion. As Jim would have put it, he stepped up to the plate. And just as I learned to appreciate the everyday virtues, the intellectual precisions, the interpretive brilliances and sublime enthusiasms of a religion as foreign to my mind as the sound of Hebrew was to my ears, my friend labored with all his might to understand what was for him an alien species of love and the styles of life that follow from it. Don't get me wrong, my sexuality has never, been, has never become an easy matter for him, just as aspects of his religion remain strange to me. But we did the best we could. A friend may well be reckoned the masterpiece of nature, Emerson declares. And while the understandings Micha and I were able to de develop at the age of 18 were more like works in progress than masterpieces, I have accomplished nothing in my life since that makes me prouder than my part in developing those understandings. When, like most people I know, I start to fear for the world, fear for the fire next time, fear that the hateful flames of ignorance, indifference, and intolerance at home and abroad will rise, will rise up to burn down all the bridges that make human society possible, I remember the friendships I learned to make in college. I try to think about the rare chances, the rare chances we are given at various times and places, times and places like here and now, to start beating swords into plowshares, as another Micah put it, by something as simple as striking up a conversation with someone different in the dining hall. Why not risk one's own little point of view, Virginia Woolf, the Grand Duchess of High Modernism, asks. After all, as Edward III, medieval history again, according to legend declared in the heat of a dance as he tied his partner's fallen garter to his leg, Honi soin qui mal y pense, the shame is his who thinks ill of it. Thank you. That concludes tonight's program. Thank you so much for being here. Head back to your residential colleges for your small discussion groups. Advisors, you know what to do.